Welcome to the Fierce Focus Show. Hi, everybody. This is Ryan Ross. Welcome to another episode of the Fierce Focus Show. Mark Jennings is the CEO of Subculture.com, which allows people to post reviews for any live event. They're currently fundraising with a really cool model, and we talk about this in the interview, and it allows just about anybody to take an equity stake in the business. If you're interested, you can go to netcapital.com forward slash companies forward slash S-U-B-B-A hyphen media. In this conversation, we talk about working in media, shifting to work full-time on subaculture, and how he has grown it into something that you can invest in today. After listening to this, you will learn what the future of live shows will look like. You'll learn what a Delaware flip is and the best way to get deeper relationships with your favorite underground bands or, if you are a band, with your own fans. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Jennings. Mark Jennings. Welcome to the Fierce Focus Show. Thank you. Thank How you. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well. Um, you are in the Bright Talk offices, which is very cool. Uh, we are in London. Um, this is one of my, actually, probably the third interview I've done in London, so I'm glad to be getting back into it. And I've never spoken to somebody that started something like this, so I'm interested to hear the story. I think that's a good thing. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, like the music industry, right? <laughs> okay. So I have, some, I have some questions about that. I've sent you a couple, but I like to keep people on the edge of their seats. Okay. So that's good. So um, let's start with the origins. Uh, I'm guessing you're from England. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Southwest London, Kingston upon Thames. Okay. So that's where I was born. I um, I went to university in the Midlands, uh, a place called Leicester. I went to De Montfort University in Leicester. My mother brought myself and my little brother up to be Arsenal fans. My older brother's a Chelsea fan. Well, used to be a Chelsea fan, uh, but her father, so my granddad, was a Tottenham fan. Tottenham. So just to cause big ruckuses in the family, we had my. Granddad is a Tottenham fan, and uh, myself and my little brother is Arsenal fans. Where's Tottenham? Is it North London? So okay. just about a mile between there and what used Tottenham. to be that's Highbury. Right. Tottenham is it Tottenham Court Road? Does that have any, any no, relation? No, no, that's to Tottenham? totally different. It's, it's okay. up in um, Tottenham Hale. Okay. Sort of Tottenham, yeah, uh, yeah, like. yeah. I think when I get on the bus, I hear that Tottenham Hale or something. Maybe it's on the tube or something. Like <laughs> I have to say, I've never been to White Hart Lane for very good reason. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that's that's my football origins. Okay. But, um, yeah, so I, I came back and out of university I went to work in media sales. So okay. spent around about, well, that's where I've, what I've been doing for the last 15, 16 yeah. years. And what did you study in university? English and education. Okay. Yeah. All right. I had the grand ambition to be a teacher. Okay. Um, which went horribly wrong after I did some uh, work experience. What made you want to be a teacher? That's a really good question. Um, I thought it would be a really nice job. I thought it would be a really good way to... Yeah to be able to not give something back, but I really was interested in, in learning mm-hmm. and the uh, social background of learning. So how sociology affects um, the development or cognitive development of children. Um, but it didn't transpire that was much to do with teaching. Uh-huh. So once I'd done the study of sociology and how cognitive, cognitive development occurred in children uh, and then did a work placement in the grammar school in Leicester, it, there was a massive gap between the two sort of systems. Um, and it was just something that I didn't feel that I was well placed for or would particularly enjoy in the end. Yeah. Okay. But I have to say, I have a lot of friends who are teachers and who uh-huh. love the profession. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, yes. So then you, you moved to media sales. Yeah. So I was, it doesn't seem like a natural connection. It was the, the least natural connection. I was working in a pub 
uh, and one of the customers said, have you ever considered media? And I was like, oh, I love film. <laughs> and um, they basically turned around and said, oh, yeah, what about running? Yeah. Uh, so I went and spoke to a media um, sales company in London who basically said, look, we can put you into as many interviews as you can handle. Um, we're looking for graduates. And this is back in... 2000 and I want to say one. You said you looked into running? Uh, media running. So being a runner on sort of TV sets and film right. sets and things. What does that person do? They basically uh, are the lackeys that go after all the film crew and make sure that everyone's fed and watered and all the production people are in the right place at the right time. Um, it's a, uh, one of the most difficult jobs I've ever known anyone to do. Um, and you did this? No, I was, oh, you did. I was, no, <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to, I, I missed out on that. But a friend of mine did it and is now in TV production. Okay. Uh, I thought you were going to say, now he's in, no, yeah, he's yeah, in, yeah. He's in trouble. No, he, he yeah, yeah, exactly. No, he, it's... Um, I think he. It was a very. It's a very long route into the media profession of TV. But a good example of someone who's done exceptionally well out of it is Demet O'Leary, who I believe used to be a TV runner. Demet O'Leary. Demet O'Leary, who now hosts Dermot. The X Factor. Okay. So it's it's the way into the media profession. I was like, oh yeah, I really want to be on that. I want to be in the film and TV yeah. industry. And and then I went into interviewing for media sales jobs, thinking, oh, this is. Oh no, it's totally different. <laughs> Um, it's kind of like when you want to go into forensics because you thought CSI was really cool. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Forensics is not CSI. There's one way of forensics, but that's not it. <laughs> um, so you definitely, you're like, I'm not going to be a showrunner. And yep. then, so so the transition to media. Yeah, so um, it was by chance that I went into a number of interviews at publishers, um, B2B, uh, mainstream, like The Guardian, um, and a number of others, and just went into group interviews as grad. Mm -hmm. And um, there would be 12 of us in a room talking about how great we were and trying to do puzzle solving and, um, I don't know, group exercises which were sort of meant to challenge you but bring the best out of the people in the room. Mm -hmm. And then I got offered a job at uh, a publication called uh, Professional Engineering, which is okay. the Institution of Mechanical Engineers publication. Is it... I think maybe I've seen the building. Is it like the most worshipful something like that? Worship? It's on Birdcage Walk, just outside Trafalgar Square. Uh, Trafalgar Square, Westminster um, Parliament Square, um, and it's very, very regal building. It's it looks amazing. Uh, the offices are very old school, and they have a marble ballroom in the uh, basement. That's pretty cool. Um, it, yeah, yeah. It's it's very. It's next to the Institution of or Institute of Chemical Engineers, the, okay. the sort of sister. Institutions and it's it's a really really distinguished building. So you worked there for about a year, yeah, okay. selling recruitment advertising. Okay, yeah. How was that? Hard. Yeah. Really hard. And uh, so they're trying to recruit for like engineers to be in the field, or so it was essentially a, a magazine where it went out to all the the trade industry. So there was eighty thousand qualified engineers who worked on projects like uh, the London Eye. So they were responsible for putting mm, okay. up and construction of the London Eye. And so they were very overqualified, or not overqualified, very qualified. And their publication was all about informing them on the latest goings on in the institution and uh, the world uh, at large. And our job was to sell recruitment advertising from companies who might be looking to recruit for engineers for either maybe oil refineries or uh, basically large jobs which required a certain level of engineer. And it's one of the, the biggest sort of awakenings I ever had when it came to sort of working out how things worked. Hmm. In what way? So it was my first joint into publishing. So when it came to putting together a magazine, um, selling advertising, the editorial side of, of things, working out how content essentially drove um, 
the environment in which you could sell advertising and vice versa, obviously how the sales side of things was responsible for so much more as well. And it, it was kind of how do you pair the two of, of content with sales? Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was a great job, actually. Really, I really enjoyed it. It was hard, really hard. Why was it hard? Lots of cold calling, yeah. uh, call sheets. Um, it was a good group of people, very good group of people. I'm still in touch with, actually. Um, and it was it was a young group, so we were very sort of energetic and we wanted to do well. But I think it was one of those jobs where there was a certain time limit to it because you either enjoyed it that you wanted to keep doing it for years and years and years, yeah. or you wanted to go on to the next thing. Yeah, and so for you, that was that was my first ever role in digital advertising, mm-hmm. which was selling banners on a B two B financial publishers website. This is incisive media. Yeah. yeah, this is incisive. So yeah, spent two and a half years working for Tim Veller's company. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, it was it was great fun actually. Um, I think one of the best groups of people I've ever worked with. Mm. And again, still keep in touch with those guys. But it, it was a very different environment to the one previously, purely because it was we were talking about a, a, a medium which hadn't really been explored too much. At that point, we were still putting gift banners onto JavaScript pages and talking about getting clicks to, to yeah. convert. Yeah. Um, and which went down well, but the the advertisers were all um, asset managers or you know, fun houses. It was all very very B two B. Yeah. Um, so it was a very different environment to selling recruitment advertising yeah, to yeah, yeah. the likes of. Was it Siemens. different? You, so you moved to FT after that? No, from there I went on to a startup for about nine months called okay. the Sportsman. Huh. A very short lived experience. Sportsman in what? Yeah. What kind of sports? It was set up as the rival to the Racing Post. Okay. And they had like horse races. Yeah, okay. so it was, it was basically uh, sports betting. Okay. So it was back in the day when the market itself was coming into fruition. So you had the racing post leading the charge, but all of the sports betting uh, or the sports books, I should say, were becoming. They were seeing the the opportunity to really drive their business further. Um, and we launched. I say I was part of the team that launched uh, the. I launched the digital side of it, but uh, the other guys did the paper. Um, and yeah, it was a big deal. It was the first day newspaper to be launched in the UK for what I think was 20 years. Well, how do you launch something like that? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I still this day don't know how they did it. Um, it was a big endeavor. They got a load of funding. So their, I think their seed was something like 13 million pounds. Wow. And they managed to blow it in nine months. Yeah. <laughs> um, they hired an astronomical amount of people, yeah. um, all of whom have come from the competitors. So were basically writing or producing exactly the same publication that they've been doing before with slight alterations to copy or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and with that, they had to pay quite high salaries to achieve those goals. So, again, a great group of people who yeah. really wanted to do something different and approach the industry with a different vision, I guess. But the outcome was kind of the same but with the worst circulation, yeah. so it didn't go very far. Huh. So that after nine months there, then you went to FT? Yeah, I, I got made redundant. Uh, we all did from the sportsman. Um, although, just to go back to that very quickly, one of the best mm. marketing exercises I've sure, ever sure. seen. Um, the sportsman bought two, a pair of season tickets to every football club in every division in the UK. Wow. Or maybe in England. Uh, so we had something like, God knows how many season tickets. But yeah, so we know where the money went. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that was right. But uh, yeah, so we yeah. So after that, um, I got a job at the Financial Times. Yeah, working in London, and um, yeah, it was it was a brilliant year. I, I worked there for a year, huh. um, and again, that was a massive learning curve for me because it was a, a very young, 
um, office. We were all sort of mid to late 20s, had a phenomenal time, were led by some great, great uh, management. And also we, we just wanted to, to enjoy it as well. Um, and digital at that point was was taking a very serious direction. Yeah. We were expected to do different things now. It wasn't just a case of selling a space mm-hmm. on a page and hoping for the best. It was much more of a case of understanding what it meant to the client. Yeah. This is when? Uh, 2006 must be. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of... So I've been there for about a year. And then at the end of that, that year, in about October, there an opportunity came up in the New York office. Um, and I got given a chance to go over and do basically three months worth of work just sort of uh, filling in for a few bits over in New York in the same sort of environment and absolutely loved it absolutely loved it and what did you like about New York I think from a business perspective it was a real again it was a massive learning curve but for a very different reason so going to the FT and learning how the industry was changing from a digital perspective was was big going to New York and learning how a different culture did business Mm. was just what are the big differences you think Oh, well, there's, it's really funny because I made a joke at this when I left, actually. It was a case of the New York attitude lives, lives and thrives in all aspects of life. It's, it's a direct approach to having fun, to, to doing business, to, to everything. It's an efficiency which is unsurpassed, I think. Huh. Um, but it's a good one. It's a very, I don't want to muck you about, I want to get this done, yeah, yeah, but I really yeah. want to work with you. Yeah. Um, and also, I think everyone, the, the city's set up to, to get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as we just had two inches of snow in London over a weekend <laughs> and we couldn't use underground uh, for three days. I think it's, it's testament to their determination out there. It's yeah. really built on determination to get things done and um, I loved it. absolutely loved it. Yeah, I remember I lived in New York and it was like every week you get like three feet of snow and you're just like, you're killing me, but you still go. Yeah. Right? Most of the time. If there's a hurricane, people will probably take a couple of days off. And it was, it was also the funniest thing was, was being... Being new to this and, and working with some old school New Yorkers, it was it was working out what the advice was and when to take it. Mm. So like um, some classic examples from the different seasons was in winter. There's like you need to get some good snowshoes. Yeah, like, I'm from England. I've got I've got good shoes. Don't worry about that. And then you know you wake up with three feet of snow. Yeah. It's like that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, and never get an empty subway car. Oh, because there's always a reason it's empty. Yeah, yeah. It's not because you're First lucky. First, you're like Eureka, then you're like crap. <laughs> Damn it, something's wrong here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was really good fun. So for the three months I was out there on secondment, and I came back, and they offered me a job out there, and I was like, right, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in time, I have to admit that I I thought I was God's gift to to sales and advertising, okay. and I think it was probably from the New York experience that 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 helped that sort of confidence boost. Yeah. But at the same time. I thought I'd learned so much about how everything worked that I could do things a different way. Yeah. Um, and again, I was. <laughs> it was very short-lived. Yeah. It was. It was. A, it was. A, it was a wrong move. It was a wrong sort of. I think mentality to have. There was still a huge amount of learning to do. And I think this obviously still is with the digital environment. Yeah. But I think I walked into a lot of situations back at that point with a, a confidence I shouldn't have had. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe bordering on arrogance. Maybe. Was there some moment that made that realization happen? When I got offered the job out there, um, it was on good money, but it was also with the idea that in a, you know, in a certain time frame, I would be going from a, a sort of role where I was looking after a set of accounts to being the director of, of digital. That was the conversation I'd had with the guys who were interviewing me. Um, and they said that was fully achievable. And I think that when it got to the point after, a sort of, I think it was, I applied for that role twice when it came about, and I was denied that. I think that's when I needed to sort of wake up and think there were reasons why I wasn't given that chance it was because I wasn't ready for it Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think that's what needed to, that's what I realized when I came back. It was that I've made some very, very, you know, big steps forward, but I, I certainly wasn't at that point in time ready for what I thought was the right move for me. When did music come into the picture? So music, oh, it was, it was so in the undercurrent of everything that had been going on, I had a couple of friends who'd set up uh, a blog literally writing about local gigs in, in Clapham. Okay. Um, and they've been doing it since about 2000, maybe even 99, and yeah. they've just basically set up a basic page of script and they were just writing about things. But one of them was quite well connected to the music industry and the fact that um, he'd been writing for various uh, other blogs and knew the people in the press agencies that represented labels, was getting access to gigs through tickets and stuff. Um, and it was kind of it was it wasn't growing to the point where it was going to become the behemoth, but it was certainly making waves and people were getting to know about it. Um, and I got, I was going to say enumerated or rather enumerated with them one uh, evening um, on Clapham Common, and basically that was at the point where I was at Incisive Media selling my first ever digital role. Mm-hmm. And so I said, oh, we can make a fortune out of this. Let's start selling advertising on it. Um, and it had been on the back burner for probably the entire time at that point where we'd all dip in and out of help each other out. If there was an email that came through to one of the guys, I'd jump in and maybe offer some advice with regards to how they might sell a banner advert or whatever it might, whatever it might be. Um, and nothing ever came of it in the fact that there was no money ever made properly. So, you know, banner adverts at 30 quid a month or whatever it might be. But it was still the inception of what would become the idea which is now we're doing mm-hmm. um but it was it was always a it was a hobby more than it was a a business idea and it only took shape a little bit later on when we decided that we thought we knew best and that goes back to my point before about the sort of not the arrogance but maybe the confidence of sure. we could do things a lot better than they're being done yeah so, so the idea came from your friends that were blogging, and you're like, wait, 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 I think there's something. Here. Yeah. So they they were they were massive music aficionados who who still have every opinion about whatever band it might be. Yeah. For me, it was a case of there's an opportunity here which I think is is massively undervalued from that perspective. I think there's there's an opportunity that we can do something different with this. But at the same time, I love what's happening with this and. It's very easy. At that point, it was very easy to set up basic pages of, of, of Java, of just literally putting something on online. Yeah. And then from working with you know guys at the FT or everyone knew someone who could put together a WordPress site. So at certain stages, there'd be a case of someone would say, oh, Mark or whoever, you know, can we put something together or can we change the website? Can we do a different design? And someone would know someone who was like, oh, yeah, this guy does web development. Yeah, no problems. He'll do it for, you know, couple of hundred quid or whatever mm-hmm. and we got to the point where we launched a new version of the site probably 2010 maybe maybe earlier than that but anyway it was it was done for a friend of mine who he found it he could do a, a wordpress site in 20 minutes mm-hmm. as long as he had the right sort of images and stuff like that so yeah what was it originally was it a was there like a beta launch saying we exist? This is what it no, is. No, it was literally they just put a blog up. Yeah, and um, they started writing about the, the gigs. And at that time, because it was much easier to gain access to, you know, going to see bands for free because you could say you were press or yeah. getting in to talk to press agencies. Because at that time as well, I mean, it hasn't changed 
dramatically with regards to what artists and the music industry is looking for. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly changed in the way that the the number of people who are able to blog about yeah. of this these experience exist. Yeah. So at that point, there was say five to ten established blogs. When I say established, maybe have been in existence for two to five years. Okay. And they were the ones who were who were blogging about the bands in London at that point. And these would be the bands who weren't playing at the big venues, so it wouldn't be at Wembley Arena or mm-hmm. um, underground stuff. Underground. Yeah, it, it was going to be literally the pub at the end of the road. It was going to be 100 to 150 people, and it was going to be you know, a great show, but no one was going to know about it. Um, and that developed because these bands were getting picked up by record labels because record labels were looking for anything coming out of the ordinary. They wanted to make sure they had a backup to whatever was going on in the mainstream, which is still the case, I guess. A backup? Yeah, someone who's, you know, like um, a good example right now would be a, a band who's coming through who's got a very underground following but sure. might not be necessarily chart-friendly. Um, uh, um, although that's, I mean, again, that's changing obviously Spotify, but um, I guess that's another discussion to have. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, one of my questions is going to be how has, I think the music industry is going through a revolution right now, right? Because it's easy to get music for pretty much free. Yeah. Um, and how would you say is this is this an answer to that or is it is it contributing to the revolution with Subba? Yeah, yeah. So what this has been a really big uh, point of contention for me for a good number of years yeah. because it's been trying to work out the value proposition for two parties, and that's been the the fans mm-hmm. and the artists. Yeah. So I've never been an artist, but I've always been a fan. Yeah. And the value proposition to me is that I want to find out, I want to know, and I want to hear what's great but I don't want to trawl through three billion different articles of text from every different publisher yeah. because they might not be, one, uh, relevant to me. Yeah. And I think from a, an artist's perspective, like you said, the, the plethora of channels now to be able to distribute content, whether it be through live experiences or through um, the streaming channels, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. it's, it's how do you get value from your content and how do you make a living out of it? And I think that right now is going for a change because the record labels have worked out that streaming is the way forward. It's taken some time. Um, mm. but, um, but so, yeah, it's, it's been trying to work out how to position a product which enhances the user experience, enhances the listening experience, enhances the entire ecosystem experience, taking into account that the two major drivers of that are the people that buy the experience and the people that are selling that experience. And all the middle people... How, what role do they play within that experience? So if you're going to a gig tonight, you're buying a ticket to be to see a band, mm-hmm. but your relationship should be with that band. It's not with the venue, it's not with the promoter, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not with the label, it's not with management, it's with that band. Yeah. The difficulty is obviously there are a number of players in that market or in that model which we don't want to upset and we think provide a very valuable service to the band and to the fan, mm-hmm. but behind the scenes. So it's making sure that everyone's taken care of. But I think right now there's a real need to be able to disrupt because one technology is available to be able to do it and two the fan expects a different service um, and the artist isn't getting paid enough um, the the value that everyone places on tickets or music is is very low hmm. why so there's a big um a big debate right now in the fact that um in the industry it's seen as a very positive thing right now to sell your tickets out in minutes at minutes yeah, so if you were going to Glastonbury next year, you would be uh, disappointed if they went in two minutes, but that's probably likely to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously that would be down to either scalpers or bots or whatever it might be. But what's in the industry is everyone sees that as a really positive thing, that, 
hey, we're Glastonbury, we sell out in minutes. From an economist's perspective, it's the mm-hmm. worst possible pricing model because you shouldn't sell out in minutes. Yeah. Because otherwise you're pricing your tickets that completely, uh, yeah. you're undervaluing them yeah, yeah, horrifically. Yeah. Um, and the model itself is, is ridiculously um, screwed. So our basis going forward now is to come up with a model which takes into account what's fair for the artist, what eradicates to a certain extent the secondary market because that provides revenue for the ticketing provider but for no one else in that chain, mm-hmm. bar maybe a couple of people who benefit, but not the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and also make it so that the fans get an opportunity to buy the tickets they want to get hold of. And there have been a number of attempts from the bigger players in the market to be able to provide this. Uh, but so far, it's, it's been very apparent that none have worked particularly well. Um, and there are a couple of solutions that are coming out in the market right now, um, some which are, are pretty, pretty smart and some are a bit too smart. Because, we again, what we've always tried to do, and this is, I guess, the, the, the evolution of subculture, has been that we've always tried to make sure that we're listening to what the fans want because without that, we can't change the product to be relevant to them. So at the moment, we have a reviews platform which allows people to post reviews about the bands they love. That's great. Mm-hmm. We don't have the ability to provide them with a ticketing service because we don't want to work with someone who provides a lesser experience than one that we think should be yeah. available. And through talking to fans, they don't want anything which is too complicated. No one understands the need for paper anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone wants to be able to buy them at a fair price and gain access. And everyone wants to be able to buy on a secondary level, but no one needs to charge at 12 times the price, or whatever it might be. So it's, it's coming up with that model where everyone's happy. Is that in... Is that a, a future plan or...? Yeah, so we're, so we're now going through the process of raising our seed. Mm-hmm. And our seed investment is to do a number of different things. And one of them is to create a ticketing system which puts the power or puts most of the power into the band's hands. Mm. So as a, as a pricing structure, as a fan management tool, as a data gatherer, yeah. everything that allows them to be able to say, right, we're playing at whatever pub it is tonight. Uh, 200 people are coming along. We know we've got this amount of people who've bought tickets at 5, 10, 15, 25, 150 pounds, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, we've got the information of when they walk in because we'll we sort it to them. We can then verify when they get through the door, and then that data is then stored in the back on our system, so that we now know who's been to the concert or gig. Um, and then if they're reviewing it, uh, who else do they might know? It's trying to make sure that they can grow their fan base with the most amount of information possible. Yeah. Um, and we don't think that's been done particularly well anywhere at all. Um. I want to. I want to go back to this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to uh, back into our history, right? Yes. Yeah, sorry. So, yeah, no, okay. so um, this was kind of a side gig for a little while. Yes. Right. What forms did it go through throughout the time that that has been? Yeah. Happening? I mean, we we say side gig. I think you know, with a certain amount of tongue in cheek. Um, it it was. I think until um, I came back from America in two thousand and nine. Um, it was always a kind of on the back burner. If I got an email from one of the guys saying, can you help us out with this? I'd, I'd jump in and yeah, say, yeah. no problems at all. Um, when I came back from America, I was working for another B2B financial, uh, financial publisher. Uh, and because of the role I had, I was I was kind of launching their digital portfolio and then managing the sales on that side. There wasn't an awful lot of time yeah. to, to get things done with Subba. And that's when it became frustrating because any of the emails I had got from the guys, even though I'd come back to London, they were kind of like, oh, well, look, you're close to home now. You should be able to respond to us in double quick. I was like, guys, I just haven't got the time. Yeah. 
Um, at that point as well, the guys who've been running it have been doing it now for you know, nigh on 12, 15 years. They were getting a bit bored of the whole situation because they weren't making any money. It was taking up a huge amount of time uh, because it got to a point where it was either going to go big or they were going to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, the consensus was we either did it seriously or everyone just gave up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that took about four years worth of realizations, the point of like frustrations, conversations, having a few more beers, talking it through. And then, yeah, so after four years of working at Last Word in London, then I decided with a guy called Jeremy that we were going to set it up as a business with a friend, Amber, as well. And we would launch what would be Suburb Media. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did everything wrong. Oh, really? Oh, man, everything wrong. Uh, I mean, it goes again, it goes back to confidence boarding on arrogance. It was a, we think we can create a a publisher that can take on the likes of Pitchfork, uh, that can create enough content of, of or, or valuable content which can rival someone who's doing however many millions in revenue each year. Mm-hmm. We also decided that we were going to, I was going to work half on Subculture and half on another company called Digital Willow, which was Amp's creation, a media agency. Mm-hmm. And that was a really bad move because you don't have time enough to do one startup, let alone yeah. sort of two. Um, so after about nine months of, of doing that and you know registering the business and getting everything together, <laughs> we ran out of funding very quickly, which is basically just friend loans. Yeah. And um, yeah, it came to the point where Jeremy then left. Um, Amber and I decided that we'd part company. It was best if I wanted to go and do this to do it on my own. And um, I was left with quite a huge debt. So it was a case of, right, what do I do next? And that, that's when the, I guess, the, the proper journey started of this isn't working. The, the content we're producing isn't of a standard which is editorially going to take on our rivals. Mm-hmm. We're not generating the revenue from advertising that we thought we would. And the market opportunity is definitely not where, where we ever positioned ourselves. Um, but at that point in time, we've been giving away all the free tickets to everything that we've been getting. So gigs, festivals. Yeah free CDs, pre-release stuff, to what was then a writing base of about 60 people. Um, and we were covering in a region of about maybe 70 festivals a summer. So 60 people were doing the writing? Yeah. Okay. But they weren't being paid, so it was kind of like a, a true value exchange of, yeah. I'll give you a ticket to go to Glastonbury or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You write the review, everyone's good, right? Um, but the, the problem had always been that it's all very well and good having a brand behind you, like The Guardian, and saying you've got mm-hmm. a Guardian reporter going to review Wilderness Festival, they're going to create a 2,000-word review, and it's going to talk about how great the experience was. The difficulty with that is if you don't have a brand behind you, well, the brand itself is meant to be a sub-culture brand, so you're yeah. meant to be reporting from an underground perspective, you're going to get a much lower number of people reading your article. Yeah. But it's also going to be, you know, the content's not going to be as well-written. And what started to happen was we were getting more tickets but with less end result so we get 90% of festivals in the UK at that point in time would would offer us tickets we would try and give them to as many people as possible but if our, if the people we knew that could write couldn't do it yeah, yeah. it'd be friends of theirs it'd be students it would be whoever we were speaking to at that point in time but the quality of that content was dreadful because you know if it was someone turning up who was half half drunk after yeah. the weekend writing you know, 300 words of had a great time, yeah. we'll go next year. They were like, hey, this is great, but they weren't taking it very Absolutely. seriously. Absolutely. It was awful. So we, we, we had a number of conversation with um, companies that were looking after or representing the festival saying, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're sending people who are half cut down to cover these festivals. So we had to rein that in. Um, and it, it just wasn't sustainable either. So we'd, 
I talked to a, a lot of founders, a lot of um, sort of business angels who said, oh, what's your strategy? How are you going to take this forward? And it got to the point where I was like, um, just give out loads of tickets, right? And we can just like write reviews. That'd be great. Yeah. But then <laughs> very, very quickly, and I still have a number of these pitch decks, actually. They're quite funny. They're so bad. Um, <laughs> it was all a case of, oh, yeah, so we're going to get two tickets per event. That means we can only get a maximum of two pieces of content via those two people. Yeah, that's going to restrict us from scaling this properly. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, so yeah, we. But at that point in time, I've been speaking. I did a, a massive um, sort of case, basically a lot of research from what were then our sort of biggest reviewers group, which was students and postgrads. Mm-hmm. So I did a, a, a road trip from um, Spark University, Spark Radio, which is Sunderland University's radio station down to my old um, university, which is De Montfort, and uh, Demon FM, which is their radio station, and met with all the student radio station teams and sort of said, look, we've got this proposition. We look for people who are really excited in, in reviewing music and gigs and festivals. What do you think? And they all said exactly the same thing. Hmm. They loved it. They didn't really get why it was only closed to people who were interested or working in media. Yeah, It should be open to everyone. And at that point in time, it just clicked. It was like, right, what what else? What other industries which have had a slight hiccup in circulations or or uh, readership has gone down, but now are doing really, really well? And the model that came up again and again and again, every, in fact, everyone agreed it was TripAdvisor. And it yeah. was opening up a platform where people who have a passion for a certain vertical can write whatever they wanted to, within reason, obviously, about the experience they just had about the best or the worst experiences as well. We had to be very careful about that because it is, it is very subjective. Um, and music was the same. Music was a passion point like fashion, tech, travel. It was another passion point where the user was so engaged with the content, they wanted to talk about it. Yeah. But at the point in time, they had very limited options apart from social media as to where they could post the reviews. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty we found with social media is it didn't give them enough of a space to write. So if you were to post a 300-word review on Facebook, you'd be yeah. laughed out of you know, your friendship group. Yeah. But, so yeah. we, after many conversations about this, it's like, right, okay, this, this, this sounds like it could be a winner. So I, again, at this point in time, I was kind of working as a sole founder. But I've been talking to a lot of, um, of business angels, of guys who'd, who'd got the experience, not maybe in this vertical, but certainly from doing other businesses and how to scale. Um, and the, the mentality was, this could, this could work. And I think that was when it became, okay, let's do this. I've come this far. Let's yeah. do this. So I sold my flat, uh, my first flat I ever bought. And with the proceeds, I paid off some debt uh, and then launched into Subber. I launched into what is now the platform that we see. So the name. What's the name? So Subber, and it's pretty best if I spell this out because otherwise sure, sure. it yes, won't make yes. any sense. So it's S-U-B-B-A hyphen c-u-l-t-c-h-a dot com mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a well, the main reason for it is it's, it's a Pixies um, song so it's a subculture oh okay to the Pixies and it's always represented what was the subculture so we're not talking about mainstream music we're talking about the subculture yeah it's stuck very well it's, it's now known within the not specifically within the wider audiences of music fans but specifically within the industry people will get in touch so we receive around about 200 250 emails a day from the labels, bands, press agencies, festivals, asking for coverage or telling us about what's going on or inviting us to. Yeah. And that's because that brand has gone through that sort of 15 years worth of 
not stability, but it's certainly been present in the industry. Um, and there might, you know, there's there's definitely arguments for <laughs> what might happen to it in the future. Yeah, but yeah. it's I think it's still in the early days. It was much more difficult to find things purely because Google wasn't as good as it is now. Mm. And because you know cookies didn't mean that any URL stayed within your browsing system, but now it's much easier. Mm-hmm. So although it's not as easy to do it, yeah, we would still say that the name is still much easier to find than it would have been before. It's certainly at this point in time, it's it's there because it's meant to represent the fact that at this moment in time, you can't put your thoughts down in, in mainstream press because mainstream press is very exclusive. Uh, whereas we're open to everyone, and it's a real view of the of the underground of the subculture. So yeah. So it's for all live events. Everything. Yeah. I mean, we we focus on music right now. Sure. Um, we don't see that being restricted to music in the future. We yeah. think it should be anything. So yeah. anything which is essentially ticketed. Okay. Um, so like rodeos too. Absolutely. Rodeo, yeah, 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 yeah. NASCAR. Totally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 funny. It's one of those um, areas where. We got asked the other day whether or not we are interested in doing sports. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, we, we, I'm a massive football fan. Yeah. I'd love to do sports. But we don't see that right now as a driving factor from where we've come from. Yeah. So to launch into that, we feel it would be a natural progression, as maybe with film or theatre or anything like that. Uh, but one, if TripAdvisor are listening, then they don't need to be worried right at this moment in time. But as, as, a, yeah. as a fan of music, you don't only have music as being your passion point. You have other different verticals. And it would be silly not to expand into those or have the opportunity to be able to provide that service yeah. if our mantra is open to everyone and the, the ability to provide a voice. Yeah. How long are the entries? Roughly between three and 400 words. Okay. Yeah, we, we kind of put a stop on anything below 250. Okay. Um, purely because it just doesn't, it doesn't really work very well. And you would go to a social media for that. It's, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. not worth it. You can't express your thoughts about it at a show, being like, great show. Yeah, it, it also eradicates a certain amount of um, non-fan-based reviewing. Okay. Uh, sort of like industry posting yeah. pics or whatever it might be. So right now, it's. I mean, the setup is really, really simple. And this is, I guess, why we think it works quite well, because we don't try and use AI or VR or do anything kind of crazy with algorithms to try and generate further content. It's literally about the fan has had a great time. They can write as much as they want, but the minimum is 250. And then they can embed SoundCloud or YouTube content within their review and some pictures. Um, and that applies to, we've had fans who've literally taken the best part of, you know, 300 photographs from going to Boomtown oh Fair gosh. or, you know, a festival. Yeah. Uh, that was fun trying to get that sorted out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to 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 three thousand word reviews of an album which someone just absolutely loved. Wow. But it wasn't an album which is you know main, it wasn't something which had been released and everyone was like oh my god, you know that's the best thing I've ever heard. It was mm-hmm. just like random, mm-hmm. but it was so passionate. And this is what we also found. So one of our our biggest things is we don't change tone ever. Everything is vetted before it goes live because it's just otherwise dangerous. Yeah. Um, and abuse is, is obviously not allowed. But the tone's really important. And also so is is grammar and spelling in the fact that <laughs> studying English and education at university, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would always hasten to add that <laughs> grammar's quite important to what to my learnings. But we, we can't alter yeah. that too much. I mean if someone's just misspelt something and we, we think it's like, Oh yeah, that's actually misspelled, yeah. we will sort of say. But 
Otherwise, it's it's about the reason they've written it. It's not about what we deem to be publishable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what we also found out, and the reason we changed is, if we we started, well, this was started, let's say, in '99. The difficulty of being a publication, unless you are something like the Financial Times, which reports objectively about financial matters, let's say, and the yeah. world at large, is that you become less relevant to a younger audience. So the fact that I might be a massive Britpop fan from the 90s doesn't resonate with someone who's now coming into the music industry as a young adult or a, you know post-grad or enjoying the punk scene that's just emerging now. There's no relevance to reading my writing. And that's why me editing or anyone else editing their work or sort of trying to persuade them to write about something else has no relevance. So if it's not written about, if there's an album that comes out which is huge and no one cares, from our perspective, we don't have anything to publish. Yeah. Um, and that's why for us, it's, it's, it, I think it's tricky with, without scalability, we, we will have days where we don't publish content because Saturdays, everyone's at gigs. Yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> so um, is that, are you guys okay with that too? Yeah, totally. Um, we, again, we, we don't see publishing, we, we, publishing's changed immensely in the fact that timestamping stuff is for social media. Hmm. You know, the, I think the, the thing that was the biggest awakening for publishing in London, specifically from my point of view, was the riots. Um, I'm trying to think of the year that was. I want to say it was 2010. I could be wrong on that. Riots. Yeah. So when the London riots happened in 2010, we'll go 2010. Cause I can't remember exactly <laughs> what it was. Um, everyone was checking out social media before they were going to the BBC. So Twitter was coming up with the feeds that Lewisham was on fire or, you know, there were gangs rampaging across Clapham. Um, or, And it, it wasn't necessarily waiting for the mainstream press to get a handle on a reporter down there or someone writing it up. And that's where the, the change occurred. So for us, when it comes to timestamping, we don't, we used to be all about pre-release stuff. So if we got our hands on the new Jay-Z album before it came out, that was awesome. Yeah. Because we would have an article about one of the biggest albums of that year coming out two weeks before it came out. Now that makes no difference to us whatsoever because we're not looking for being the first. We're looking for the quality of the fan. Mm. So we want the fan to go, yeah. it took some time on that one. Yeah, 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 two yeah. weeks ago I got the album. Yeah. We're listening to it non-stop. It is atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> or that is the best music I've ever heard. Yeah. Or There's normally a very, very constructive way of writing for most of the fans that do it right now. Mm. Um, but it's it's the same with festivals and the fact that we used to have to turn around content within three days of the festival um, and that would be one piece of content from one person if you've got 100,000 people stood in the field have all had the worst experience of parking or had the best main stage act they've ever seen you don't mind that coming in month, two months, next year it's, it's not about making sure you're the first to have it it's about making sure you've got the crowd perspective the fan perspective and the quality of that that fan. So it's got an interesting financing model too. <laughs> yes. Well, so far it's been money for myself, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're the blend will be to start with. I think. Um, so again, from where we are now, which is we're seeking seed investment, the idea will be to drive sales through the ticketing platform and the, uh, the well advertising. From my background, that's what I know. Mm -hmm. And I think that with the ticketing, it's a really simple solution of. Right now, we ask um, the artists, or we suggest them and certainly encourage them, that if they're looking for coverage of their newest single, that the best thing to do is, as if you've, you've stayed at a hotel, TripAdvisor will prompt you to write a review of the hotel you just stayed at, or the hotel will. 
what we do is we say to the artists, look, if you're looking for reviews, you've got 800 fans on Facebook, you've got 10,000, whatever it might be, why not see if they'll write a review? And once that comes through, once we start to populate their profile pages on Subculture, we start to see that people are coming through to read multiple reviews, exactly the same user experience as, as TripAdvisor. And then when we, when we put revenue drivers on that on that page or services to, services to enhance what the fan can get, mm-hmm. so ticketing specifically as an example, even streaming, to be honest, any links to um, any of the platforms, we start to see an increase in not only sales, mm-hmm. but also engagement. Okay. Because you're, you're advertising a gig coming up to a group of people who are directly interested in what you do, who are reading content about you and want to listen to your music. That's your captive audience. You've then got a direct link to your music, to your, uh, to your upcoming gigs, um, and all of that is powered by basically data that you can then collect, which then allows yeah, you to yeah, then yeah. take that forward and, and do it again and again and again. Yeah. So we would hope that in the future, and we, again, uh, it's, it's quite important to be very clear about where we're going with this because we've been asked why we ever do this when we're going up against some of the biggest players in the market. We don't want to be going up against... Um, so Mariah Carey played at the O2, um, I think, three nights ago. We would have no interest at this point in time in ticketing that event. Yeah. Our interest would be in the 100 other gigs that are taking place in London around the city that have got capacities of around about, let's say, 500 to 2,000 in other venues um, because that's more interesting because the accessibility for us to work with the artists is there. Um, we don't have to focus on um, one place at one time. And through the grassroots, if that's a way of saying it, maybe the artists at an earlier point in their career, yeah. the buy-in is that they, they can sell their tickets, they can manage their fan base, and they're also they're, they're open to working with new ideas as opposed to, we are this company or this label, um, this is how we work, and you will pay us this, and this is what we do. We're looking at it as a kind of, I don't know, Airbnb or an Uber, I guess, is, is saying that, this is the platform we have. If you'd like to use it, we take a 10% fee on every ticket sold, but the benefit to you is this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we'll do is we'll do everything we can to ensure that you sell out in the right way. They're not often on the secondary market, although to be fair, at the low end of the market, I would imagine that you won't get as many scalpers yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to sell five pound tickets. Um, <laughs> it'd be great. Yeah. Uh, or not, I think that's probably the answer to that one. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it's making sure that the bands who are coming up through the ranks, who are trying to get as much coverage for their music as possible, get that coverage for their own fan base. They've worked very hard to get those fans. It'd be good to you know, encourage them and engage them further through the reviews. And on top of that, give them the service that, oh, we hate secondary ticketing. It's awful. We use Subber because it gets you into the venue. You know, We think it's a fairly priced ticket based on all the other events going on in London at that point in time. We've priced it in that range. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is how it'll work. It'll be an e-ticket. You won't have to worry about it. We know who you are. Everything is fine. And then we'd like to review it, that. Review it afterwards. Yeah. So to the artists themselves, do they, you say it's like a 10% fee for them to effectively grow their fan base, right? And have the data behind that. Okay. Yeah. So it's like with, I guess, any um, sort of delivery or, or taxi service, it would be a case of you take a commission off everything sold. Sure. Um, where we see it slightly differently because our margins would be higher than, so I think Ticketmasters is much, much smaller than that. Or, you know, Eventbrite, I think you can do it for a less amount as well. But it's 
it's utilizing every other part of that arsenal. Mm. Uh, that wasn't a football pun, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's making sure that you've got every different um, point of data, managing that data. So you're vertically integrating their data Absolutely. through all the touch points they have. And what, what makes it quite um, sticky from an artist's point of view is that we hope, so let's say again, they had a 100 gigs uh, that night in London when Mariah Carey was playing at the O2. If at one point one of those gigs had someone from a label scouting out the bank said her good things and they got signed that night, when they went to that label and said, oh yeah, absolutely, uh, so this is what we do, this is what we've been doing, this is our journey so far, they can also turn around to the label and go, we've also got a data package. We know who our fans are, we know how many gigs they've been to, we know how many times they've reviewed us, and we also know what our relationship is like with them. Mm. So the, the value to their ongoing journey yeah. is greatly improved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to the label, that makes a number of other things really, really helpful because when it comes to marketing their music, they know who's listening to them. Yeah. So it's a case of, right, we work with Subba, we're whoever it might be, hopefully one of the big three. Yeah. Um, one of the big three. So it'd be uh, Universal, uh, Sony, and Warner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and once we, you know, work with them in a different, so we work with them now on a press capacity, so they, they would send us information about their upcoming releases. Okay. What we would like to do is then go and say to them, listen, we have this system. You have 300,000, whatever it is, a lot of artists on your books, on yeah. your roster. We want to work with you to make sure that we can manage, help you manage yeah, yeah, yeah. your data so that you're more effective when it comes to doing these things. What won't happen, though, to start with is that that will be an, uh, an automatic sort of route to market because obviously labels have a certain amount of infrastructure which allows them to be able to market their products to the audience that they know they have because they use social media or they have an advertising agency which does that for them or a number of different things in place. What we're thinking is once we have the information over a period of time and the, the audience scales and exactly the same with Spotify... You, you can't not use it because it becomes silly not to. Yeah. You're cutting off your nose despite your face. You're saying, I don't need your revenue or your help because I, I pay someone else to do that. It's like, well, you could do that or you could just use us and it'd be much easier. Do you guys work with the venues as well? Yeah, so we're, we're having conversations with venues. Venues are an interesting one because they're, um, in the US, they've been tied up with Ticketmaster for a long time, mm. but that's becoming much, much more open now. In fact, the US is a really interesting model um, for us. And it's a case of they have all the technology that provides them with all the data they want right now. Mm -hmm. But there's always opportunities to, to go in and sort of show them something new. But without the track record of saying that last night you had 20,000 people or however many it might be in that stadium, we had 50,000 people all around you in that city, and that's how we work. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not there yet. So I think that there's a time when it will be a case of having that conversation. Um, I hope it will be very soon. I think it will be very soon. Um but it's 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 going in again from the from the, the lower end of the market to prove model, and also to to scale with the audience that they have. Um, so if you've got a hundred bands all playing separate gigs, if you've all got say one to ten thousand audiences, but they're playing to capacities of let's say between five hundred to two thousand people, yeah, still a sizable audience. Mm -hmm. um, and you've also got a whole plethora of content coming through from that as well. So you've got the sales from the tickets coming through, you've got the content being written by some of those people all those fans and then you've got the advertising which sits next to that and then you've got the other associated revenue products which could be streaming or merchandising or anything else that comes with that or even sponsorships I guess so yeah, yeah. so it's, it's bringing the TripAdvisor model into the music and live experiences 
vertical. Isn't there a funky? Uh, there's a. I'm, I'm going to make an analogy. There's like some beer company, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There is. That's. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, right. Brewdog. Brewdog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you guys have a similar fundraising model? Mm. Yeah, we were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Brewdog had this idea, right? Where they were going to call it. You could be. A, uh, I think it was a brew punk. Or yeah, punk. yeah, yeah. And you could invest in the company, and you could get your beer. Or I don't know what the return on equity was, but we we had a similar conversation. So um, over the last say three years, we've been going through various guises and trying to work out what the best route to market was when it came to investments yeah. or investment for our business. Mm-hmm. And there has been so many different conversations with regards to angels, uh, investment specialists, um, mainly based though in the London investor marketplace, which in my opinion is not the greatest. Mm. Um, that we we got to a point where we decided that it would be a much better idea to look at other opportunities. So I got in contact with um, a guy called John Fanning. Um, I'm going to say of Napster fame. He was the the founding chairman and is now the CEO. Um, he's not Sean Fanning. That's a yeah. very important distinction to make, <laughs> and he will not thank me for saying that otherwise. Um, but yeah, John basically. Uh, it's a very hard route to get in touch with angels and business uh, people of a certain level because they get bombarded with requests. Yeah. And when I got in contact with John, he came back to me pretty much instantly to say, this is great, there's an opportunity here, I'd like to introduce you to someone who might be able to help further. And he put me in touch with um, what is a crowdfunding platform in the US uh, called Net Capital. Mm-hmm. Net Capital's mantra is that it's a, a platform available to everyone. So like Crowdcube, I guess, in the UK would be, it's inviting family and friends to be part of your, your seed raise whilst blending that with a professional investor network. Um, because crowdfunding in the US is a little uh, little younger than it is in the UK. Um, because is it? Huh? Yeah, I was amazed by this. Uh, that amazes me. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> Not even because I'm American. <laughs> I was I, honestly, I was because I mainly from the fact as well because of the um, the opportunity for financial support in the US is so much greater, I think, than it is in the UK. Okay. Oh, so the level of the accredited investor level is yeah. lower. Oh no! Well, until 2012 and mm. Obama's Jobs Act. That's Jobs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I only became aware of this uh, back in the summer. It was a minimum investment, liquid investment of a million dollars, which is unachievable for most angels, I think. I could get that wrong. But the whole thing is that until that Jobs Act was passed, it was impossible to offer a seed round to friends and family um, or or people who might buy into your product. Crowdcube, as I understand, and I I haven't raised on Crowdcube or any of the other UK-based platforms, is open to anyone to a minimum amount you can set the minimum amount being fifty pounds if you want to. The difficulty's always been um, is post investment has been sort of sorting out cap tables and who's involved as shareholders and things like that. It's a long process, but most have eliminated that by being the holder of stock. So net capital, for instance, we now have opened through John's recommendation to say, look, you've got an open to all platform. You've got uh, basically music fans and artists who you want to provide a better service with, why would you not offer them the opportunity to invest in this this business? Um, and that goes back to your, your BrewDog analogy. It's like we wanted to make, we haven't got the the, the, the name right, though. it's not BrewPunks, we yeah. should have come up with something better than that. Um, but we've, yeah, we wanted to make sure that everyone's aware that they can be investors in this business. So whether or not you are a, a, a band or a fan who 
who wants you know goes to five festivals a year whatever it might be you can invest in subculture and have a share and it's the same that's blended with angels and obviously the lower end of the VC market when we're talking to people who will only invest at seed hmm. so it, yeah it's trying to give everyone the opportunity to be involved yeah um, it's an interesting one because from the UK perspective you can only it's investing in the US so we we've gone through the Delaware flip process uh, what does that mean yeah I, I know way too much about this now for the last six months <laughs> that's um, great in order to raise in the US you have to be well through this platform especially I don't know if it applies to all platforms is that you have to be US registered business mm -hmm. and that's not a problem you can be a US registered business without being in the US that's absolutely fine but we wanted to make sure that we were as investable as possible from both the UK or European certainly uh, investor base as much as a US investor base um, and through numerous conversations with our, our lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic and also with John and his team it became really really apparent that doing the flip was the right move to make for us because making sure that we had a US business which the UK was a subsidiary of meant that we could then go on to drive what would be the business in the US so working with festivals venues trying to then get bands that we already speak to in the US yeah, yeah. to then use our ticketing platform because it made no sense not to. Mm -hmm. So the plan of action is is to obviously raise the seed investment through being registered as a US business. Um, although just to add very quickly that all UK investors will receive EIS qualification. <laughs> I had to put that one in there. Um, but, and that's very important, I think, as well, because yeah. we wanted to make sure that the both sides benefited from this. Um, but yeah, so the, the plan of action would be is that we, we've got a legacy of contacts and suppliers and businesses we've worked with in the UK. So as part of that business goes, that's on a good ground. We want to now work with John and his team post-investments as I say, right, we think the opportunity is this, but we would like some help in opening some doors. And that's, that's a really big part of the investment raise for us. It's the case of we would hope to get angels in the US who, one, are passionate about you know, the music and tech industry and changing what is we see as a, or disrupting certainly the ecosystem as it is now, mm -hmm. um, and enabling us to maybe get a foot in the door with other people who might be influencers within that industry. Because it's, again, knocking on doors is, is hard work and we've done it and it's, it's paid off. But at the same time, it's much nicer when you get to a point where you have investors who go, love what you're doing, really good opportunity here. Did you know I know this guy or this girl or this person yeah. or whoever it might be to go, yeah. So is that the Delaware flip? The Delaware flip is purely the um, kind of explanation of, of registering the business in the US. So what type of things have you, what, what are your strengths in this process and what things have you kind of had to outsource? <laughs> oh my God, that's a good question. Um, I think the latter, everything. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's been a real project management um, situation because... You know, throughout the whole process of um, either going through the legals of trying to change where the business is domiciled or making sure that we clear SEC filings for raising finances in the US or raising investments in the US, I should say, that's all done to a degree which is way beyond my level, like I said, of skill, or comfortability or comprehension. Yeah. So there are professionals that need to be involved with that process. When it comes to technology development, um, I can't code, uh, but I've worked with more technology developers than I care to mention. Yeah. Um, and that process is always a tricky one and an exhaustive one, but that's something I know very well. And then when it comes to running the business on a day-to-day -day perspective, that's something I've been doing for four years. So it's a kind of, it's, it's project management to the point of having to prioritize every different thing which needs your attention drastically 
to the point of using people with the skill sets and the expertise to be able to do it yeah. and pull it off well to then be able to go back and make sure you're covering what you know really easily or is, is more natural to you to make sure that that's being dealt with the difficulty is keeping up the standard of what what happens there mm. so uh, a couple of weekends ago we had a massive run on the site where there's about 30 reviews posted they at the moment have to we, do, we don't have a bot which goes in and does all the editorial we want to make sure we do it ourselves so that had to be done and then we also had to make sure that all the 250 artists that have been contacting us on a day-to-day basis got emails back saying thanks for your time yeah we'd love to work with you how do we do this and blah 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 at the same time, we were just going through the final processes of all the due diligence for getting the platform ready to launch our seed raise. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was a lot of sort of making sure that everyone was aware of what was going on, making mm. sure the right people knew what they had to do next. Um, and I have to say that I'm, I'm incredibly lucky that either I'm being smiled on from somewhere above, but it, it, most of the people... The angels. Were, oh, my God, honestly. Um, most people have been phenomenally supportive. Yeah. Um, we've, we've had a few hurdles to clear but everyone's dug deep. That is an interesting segue, I think, into these questions that I sent you earlier. Okay. And the first one was, um, what do you think requires your most uh, intense amount of focus and how do you do it? Because you were talking about um, prioritizing certain things, right? Oh, man, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I had a weird approach to this from the very beginning. I don't know, maybe not weird. Because I've, we've, we haven't had an office, there hasn't been a, a real sort of place where suburb culture has been uh, sort of positioned um it's normally been working from home or from a friend's place or whatever yeah. it might be and i think you've got to have incredible amounts of dedication and motivation to be able to every day go into the spare bedroom or into the lounge or wherever it might be and set up and start working so i think from my perspective i had to make sure that i was following the regimen of going to work every day mm. so when did that look like uh, wake up at between six and seven, shower, uh, maybe have a cup of coffee and check out emails, or you know have a bit of breakfast, and then just follow the the corporate day of of working through till one, maybe having a quick break in between, lunch one, going out, having a bit of fresh air, get some lunch, and then working through till five five thirty. Where that started to change, I think, over the last couple of years, is it's that at what point do you switch off? If you're at home and you're yeah. working next to a TV, do you then put the TV on and watch the news at six and you can work to the news at six till nine? Yeah. And that became dangerous because you just don't get any respite. Yeah. And lots of the, again, the sort of angels and, and other founders I've spoken to have warned about burnout, really severe burnout. Um, and because it's, there's, there's, your emotions go up and down. It's, it's a case of managing emotions managing your time and making sure you, you're taking it easy at some point um, and never checking your phone at night. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> that's the advice. That's the advice. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult now because there'll be tonight, at, you know, whatever time in the morning, there'll be an email from San Francisco or whatever, and I'll, I'll have to respond at a certain point. Mm. It's whether or not you, you know, you have the patience to just, like, wait until 7 o'clock in the morning, which it won't kill you, but it is, yeah, it's a bit... You have to be quite regimented on the timekeeping. Do you have a specific uh, way to like get in the zone? I'm a very, very morning-led person. Okay. Um, always have been. And for me, I can work pretty much constantly straight through till about lunchtime. Wow. Um, but after that, useless. No, no, yeah. no I'm joking. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much... Weirdly, actually, yeah. I found recently listening to... 
music which has a nostalgic value. Okay. So my brother's a huge music fan, um, big Beatles fan, and he brought me up to listen to Paul McCartney. Okay. Um, so I've been going through some of Paul McCartney's earlier albums, um, which is for good or for bad. But um, <laughs> and also and for, <laughs> what can I say? I'm a big Britpop fan. So listening to like some of you know Supergrass's early work or Oasis, and just putting the album on and yeah. just literally focused on a go. Maybe like I did at university, just literally woke up. At, used to wake up at four in the morning to do dissertation work. Work through till uh, twelve o'clock. Have a bit, couple of hours of lunch, then hand it in a bit later. So you wake up pretty early, yeah, and you just get to work, and that's like emails or just uh, managing people. No, I mean right now it's it's, it's only me in the business. Yeah. Okay, uh, we've got a couple of people who are helping out on the side yeah. when they need to. It's more of a case of for the last six months, especially, it's been managing the process of the registration in the US, yeah, getting everything ready for the fund raise. And that might mean that waking up at 7 o'clock and just doing emails with regards to some of the stuff that's come through from the US or whatever. And then mainly dealing with any of the artists and the press agencies and all the people who've been contacting throughout the last yeah. couple of days to make sure we're on top of that. So you're making sure that everybody, all the stakeholders are engaged in the yeah. process, moving 100%. it forward. And that, uh, I think the two priorities which have taken over from that recently... The one priority which has stayed constant throughout the entire process since the new platform was launched, actually, the biggest thing for us is content. Mm -hmm. Without that content, we're screwed. Yeah. So whatever happens, and it could be on holiday, the weekend, out of the pub, the quicker that review is checked and put up on the site, the quicker that... And we, we have a system where when someone uh, submits a review, they're made aware that it's, it's waiting for publishing. And then when it's published, then it's, we ping them to say, we just published a review. Why don't you share it with your, your friends? Mm. So the quicker they're made aware that they're, 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 the content they've submitted is of value to us and yeah. that we've published it, that overrules everything. Um, and that's, that's really important for me right now. So if we get content, that goes. And then it's after that, it's probably the investors, otherwise I would get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, it's, it's dealing with, you know, mainly the business conversations of just keeping everything up and running. And then there'll be a small amount of due diligence with regards to making sure that everyone knows where everything is. This is the biggest risk question. What's the biggest risk you've taken? And it may have been subculture, maybe maybe not doing something. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this. Um, there's there's two big risks I took, which one, I still don't know if it's going to work out, or two of them, I don't know if it'll work out. Um, the first one was leaving a fairly well-paid job to do this full-time. But there was at that point, there was I think there was a natural progression for me to do this. I, I think I wanted to a lot, mm. and I thought it was the right move to make, and regardless of what happened in those first nine months, we'll, we'll, we'll pass that <laughs> on. But, and the second one was, there was always an importance placed, um, both from my family uh, and, I guess, society, in property ownership and I'd spent a fair bit of time when I came back from the States after saving for quite some time um, putting that deposit together for my first flat and then when it came to the point where I had to sell it for more than I probably wanted to but it was the best thing I did I, it was actually a really good move for me to make but it was a huge risk it had done quite well in the property market I bought at the right time and it provided me with enough to pay off and then do this for the following three years hmm. um, but it was not looked on particularly fondly from <laughs> there's that thing it's parents, called so. getting on the ladder right oh my word yeah and I think that again it's it's something which provides I'm very very lucky and fortunate if this goes well obviously uh, <laughs> to have a business which will provide me with um, an income uh, a pension hopefully and whatever it might be and that's that's all I can hope for yeah. with regards to I think with society's a norm it's, it's seen that's the property that's the pension mm-hmm 
you know, if, if the state won't cover that, it's going to be the property, and we all hope that you know it'll make some money throughout the process. For me, from for property perspective, it hasn't meant so much because of subculture's been in the background. So I've always hoped that subculture would be that mention. Yeah. yeah. And do I do I regret it? No. Do I think it could have been done differently? Absolutely. Was I naive to have done a few things? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I think that was probably the biggest risk. And I think it will still be frowned upon from certainly my family because uh, it, it 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 doesn't sit well with people who don't who aren't immersed in in suburb in yeah, the way yeah, that yeah. I am. So yeah. This next question: six qualities <laughs> oh, yes. of a successful entrepreneur. What um, do you think? It's re- again. I was thinking about this, yeah. and I'm not sure that I have any of them. But uh, no, it's 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 a really really difficult one because for me, integrity and honesty sit really really high on that scale. Um, and I don't think that these are all equal, but they're certainly qualities which I I hold very close in, uh, to my heart. Um, tenacity, mm. um, mainly because I'm just a stubborn git. But uh, what's a git mean? Oh come on! <laughs> how, how long have you been in London for? Um, I guess not long enough. Oh mate, yeah. Um, so no, it's being a git, a detrimental guy. Got yeah. It. Uh, so being a stubborn <laughs> guy, um, I think you, you've got to love what you do. I mean, the passion is up there. Yeah. Um, for me, it's always been a case that if I wake up in the morning, I'm not. I might have had a bad day before, but I'll always be looking at it from a fresh perspective and hoping that I've got a solution to the next step. Yeah. And I, if you don't have the passion to do that, I know people who just be like, meh, whatever. Um, dedication, uh, which I think is different to tenacity, um, to keep going. So tenacity, I think you've always got to be pushing and you've always got to be headstrong is my version of tenacity okay. with dedication i think you've just got to have the willpower yeah you know i i will do this today and i will get this done even if it takes 12 12 months or four years um, <laughs> and this one i mean oh god knows how i haven't done without this I, I never thought i was a very patient person ah patience nothing in startup world happens when you want it to absolutely nothing apart from the bank calling you they want their money back um, <laughs> but nothing happens as quickly as you want it to in the right way um, without any hitches there's always something which goes and without the ability and I've, my old boss actually was superb in teaching me to do this always said that you've got to take a night to sleep on it if the decision's gone badly or something's gone horrifically wrong do yeah. not react to it there and then mm. and um, <laughs> there's been some times when it's taken a week to react to it just to, to, wow. to take it because you, you, there are certain development on a website good God if you speak to, it's like having builders in if you speak to a developer and he says three months six months yeah I've heard it's uh, double the cost and double the time oh, always always or I mean depending on who you work with it can be double the time and a little bit more cost because they get very angry with you um, <laughs> but the patience factor is without that it, you're, everything just goes everywhere and I'm, I'm not always great at managing that I have to say uh, and then the last one was focus. I think that's one, two, three. Appropriate. Um, yeah, I, I had to, to put that one in there somewhere. Um, again, I think it's 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 one of those things where the passion, the focus, and the determination or tenacity. There, there's a very blended sort of mix there. I don't think they all sit very very separate. Um, but the focus can be, from my perspective, is to be given a challenge and then say, right, my goal for this week will be to get that done or to know in the long run where we want to be as a business. And what's been really eye-opening, actually, from a, uh, a startup perspective, is having conversations with angels where they would rather you tell them where you're going to be in five years' time than where you're going to be next week, because mm. they don't really care where you're going to be next week. They want to invest in a business proposition, but 
with the goal that you're so clear on where you're going to be that if you're not there, they'll be really upset. Yeah. So they can invest on you with that goal in mind. So yeah, that's that's me. Yeah. So the next question is is it's kind of about mentorship, right? Yeah. Study with an expert, and usually what I say is study with an expert. After that, twelve for a week, right? After that week, you can't talk to them anymore. Who would it be, and what would you want to learn? There was two, I had to say there was two because I had one which was a bit stereotypical. Okay. Um, so I am I have submerged myself in the life and times of Richard Branson. Okay. So Richard Branson. He has I, a new book out. He does. He does. I, I haven't bought it yet, but I'm hoping there might be a Christmas present on the way. <laughs> um, his his journey I always thought was you know from the starting up student magazine to having the record label to going to it's a very I, I love the idea and the, the sort of the the way that it was done. Yeah. And I think that as he comes across, I mean, I've never met him, unfortunately, but as he comes across, I think he, he would be that guy to spend yeah. the week with and say, you know, you've had more ups and downs than one of your planes. Um, how do you put that into context? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what oh, would you man. say to anyone else? You rode like an air balloon? Oh, air balloon? honestly. Um, and I've got equally as stupid, uh, well, he did it, so I can't say it's stupid, but equally as, as crazy amb- ambitions with regards to that sort of thing. But the other one, which I, I, I just love to spend a week with, it was only a week, I'd love to spend a lot more time with him, but it's Barry Gordy, the guy who Barry created Gordy. Tamla, the Tamla record label for Motown. Okay. And I say he created it. He was a record executive, and he saw a massive opportunity for Motown in what was a very white-led industry. Um, and although the, the story is a not particularly friendly one, in the fact that it doesn't, he doesn't always come out very well or liked. Mm-hmm. Um, again, his ambition and his tenacity to deliver what was to be one of the biggest um, ever record labels in the US, purely driven through a specific genre of music, is just amazing. And it led to what was now other creations, which would be like sort of Def Jam or you know other other record labels which have come out from this real fight to want to do something different. So, what would you want to learn from him? At what point do you stop? Stop going. So one of the biggest flaws that I've been told most uh, entrepreneurs suffer from is the ability to stop, knowing when to give up or Mm. knowing when it's not going to work. Um, I suffer from it. And from friends and family, they'll tell you I'm that stubborn that I will never stop, which is fine by me. But there has to be a point where it's not going to go any further. And you either exit if you've done well or you have to give up and you go back to the drawing board, or you just stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that with with both of them, so with both Barry and with, with Sir Richard, you have a number of different businesses which you're looking after, specifically with obviously with Richard Branson, where they're not always going to do well. Um, Tower Records is a great story where he walked into, he got the check from Tower Records for, a, I think it was in the region, I'm going to get this number wrong, but let's say a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And then went and put it into Virgin Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. But he knew at that point in time it was right to stop because yeah, yeah. it wasn't going to go well otherwise. And he had to. It's like you're killing a child. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, I mean, to be fair, if you take it from one to give to the other, to, uh, you know, yeah, it's that's not true. the worst, I guess. But <laughs> but from from that perspective, I think knowing what the limitations are, what 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 you should avoid doing, because I think that if you believe in something so passionately, it's very easy to give everything you've got to make it work. Because if you don't, you're not, it's not going to work anyway. But it's when it gets to the point where you've given everything, but you think you can give a bit more, but is that going to change the outcome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, marginal returns or exactly. nothing. Or, or it's going to be, you know, 
yeah, less effective. So that's I, I mean that's a pretty pessimistic way, but <laughs> hopefully the, their experience in their business worlds would have uh, yeah yeah drawn them to that. That's cool. Three elements that that made made it that clicked, right? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, this is again, it's it's the pivoting moments over the last uh, three years. It, it was kind of the first was the the realization that what we'd done was wrong. Mm-hmm. So coming up with the that was actually one of the hardest conversations I've ever had with a friend of mine to say that we there's no more money. Um, what we've created isn't right yeah. and we can't change that but there's no way we can do this anymore um, and that goes back to the earlier point of I'd like to know when to say stop but that wasn't really a stop moment that was just saying we can't pay you anymore so that's the end of it mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was quite a harsh conversation to have that that was one of the, the pivot points where we had to come up with a different a different platform a different business model um, the second was probably the road trip that university road trip yeah um, I learned it. I was exhausted. I've never driven so much in one day. I don't think. <laughs> oh man, it was horrible. Um, but the the reception from each and everyone was phenomenal. Um, and the I think the the excitement that was generated from speaking to people about the business that we could possibly create was at a level where it's like I can't not do this. This is this is the way forward. And then it was probably earlier this year, maybe. Jan or March, so about 12 months ago, when I decided that instead of trying to knock on every door at labels and say, we've got this great concept, we reckon we should work with your entire roster of artists, why don't we do this? It was actually intensifying the workload by going back to every artist that we knew mm-hmm. and was contacting us to say, this is how we work now. What Would you be interested in putting this out to your fan base? Yeah. And instead of a label coming back, oh, that's, that's great. Oh, we're so happy! Well done, you. <laughs> it was like you know being rubbed by on the head by you know it's like a small child. Like, oh, thanks. Um, every artist came back and said, "This is this is great." I mean, why why is no one else doing this? And that at that point, it was like, why is it, why is no one else doing this? Yeah. And I think it was a realization that from that point, and with the festivals as well, when the smaller festivals came back to us and said, "This is genius," because we we cannot physically get coverage in media, which has a, a declining circulation and audience base. But now you're offering the opportunity to engage the customers that we've had who love our products to be able to write about it to their friends on a platform which has got a wider music audience. I was like, you know, no, we, we, yeah, we, we know, we know. They're like, okay. And that was, that was the realisation when it was like, right, we need to get the money for this. We need to do it properly. And then we need to make some friends in high places and see how we make this. Not so it's a, a fan website, but so it's a publisher who drives revenue experience-led content but most importantly returns on investment which is unfortunately what i now have to talk about what took longer for to create this than you expected it's about expectations right yeah and what didn't take as long what was like oh my jeez oh the first is everything um <laughs> yeah what didn't take i think it's pretty rest what didn't take so long um the realization earlier this year was that it was that that didn't take so long i thought it was gonna be a really hard long slog to be able to get a response from the marketplace from certain people in the ecosystem to go yeah that works yeah that, that was actually a really, really quick response, um, which I was really happy with for obvious reasons. Um, pretty much everything else has taken a lot longer. Yeah. Um, and that goes back to the point about patience, I think. Yeah. In that, there, you know, you don't sleep well. You know, you've got to go through every different emotion. You've got to make sure that everyone's talking. Uh, all your suppliers are doing what they're meant to be doing. All the people that are doing the work are meant to be covering off. And I think that it gets to a point where, you know, 
it's not even a case of trusting people it's an expectation yeah because yeah. you've got to be able to go right i'm deliberating to you, you know you can you guys delegate sorry to you that's fine you can do that um but delegation it's not even yeah it's, it's not even i don't think it covers it so what what took longer pretty much everything that i've tried to do but that's only because my expectation sure I don't think that's a, a fault of the business yeah. or a fault of the people doing it. It's mainly down to, to me or how it's been done. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's a market problem. Yeah. The market problem we're trying to solve is endemic and that yeah. will hopefully be solved from what we're creating. Yeah. But it takes time to create that product to make sure we've got it right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's cool. my longest winded answer. That's great. <laughs> um, so if people are interested in either being a band on this or being a, a, a contributor or an investor for that matter, how do they engage with you guys? Yeah, so I, I would recommend, um, well, two things. is first either get in touch with me mm-hmm. or um, go through the website, which all my details are there on the About Us page. Okay. Um, I can give you my phone number and email address if that helps. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's basically it's mark yeah. at suburb-culture.com. Okay. Um, and we're live on Net Capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you went to netcapital.com, uh, and look for Suburb Media. That's where our offering page is. Okay. Um, and yeah, we're, Twitter? we're excited. Twitter, we're at Subculture.com. Okay. No spaces or dots or anything. Yeah. Okay. Mark Jennings, thank you for coming on the Fierce Focus Show. Right. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fierce Focus Show. If you know somebody that might be interested in either investing or in being a user, or if you know somebody in a band that might benefit from being on Subaculture, let them know. Share this podcast with them. If you're interested in future episodes, stay tuned. Find us on Twitter. <laughs> find us on iTunes. You can also find us on brighttalk.com. Looking forward to another episode. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.